Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you here and those that are seeing us on live stream. We're glad you, you're checking in with us this morning. Uh, I always feel bad for some of our teams. The, probably the hardest time to do ministry gets around the end of August. One, because the state's fair there, and all of you are, that are at the state's fair, we will pray for you. Um, uh, that's one aspect of it. The other, of course, is Labor Day weekend, and uh, there's just, it's kind of like vacant city, and everyone sort of is getting their last shots in on vacation time and getting away with family. Uh, perfectly understandable. We're thrilled that you can get away and hang out with friends and family and do those kind of things, but it's sometimes tough on our team seeing sometimes it feels like a half-empty building, but we're thrilled that you're here. Uh, one thing I want to mention before I jump into the text this morning is that well, we've been telling you throughout the summer, and I mentioned last week, about uh, trying to reposition ourselves to take our next step forwards as a church. And on September the 8th, which is Thursday, the day after the Iwana meeting, we are going to do two things. One, we're having, inviting you to an all-church prayer time from 6 to 6.40, um, and that'll probably be in room on 107. Uh, there's no carpet or anything in there. In fact, we've got a second gym now. Uh, if you've never seen it, it's quite uh, cute, I guess. Um, <laughs> And, uh, but we're gonna meet from 6 to 6.40 for a prayer time, and then 6.45 to 7, we're gonna try to lay out some of the core ideas on our vision frame as we move forward. So certainly you're all invited to join us. If that gets too busy in there, we'll drop back into this auditorium for that time. But if you're interested in our next steps forward as a body of believers, we wanna come and uh, share some of the ideas that we really believe the Lord is putting on our hearts. So that's September the 8th. The Thursday night uh, prayer time from 6 to 6.40, 6.45 to 7.30, uh, at least will be the presentation element of it. We'll be there as long as uh, people have questions to figure out our next steps. So we hope that you will join us for that. Before we step into the text, let me invite you to bow with me for a word of prayer. Father, we live in a pretty chaotic world, and... For me at least, and I hope for others, the beauty of gathering together as the church on a day like this really gives an opportunity for us to refocus our attention upon Christ. It gives us a chance to pause in the midst of the fast-paced life that we often live and just to continue to realign our hearts and our minds, to place them before your throne of grace knowing that you will never cast us out but did you lovingly nudge our heart and our spirit to make adjustments in our life to the things that you know are best for us? And Father, there isn't anything more important than keeping our eyes fixed on Christ, to know that we come before, freely before your presence and your throne of grace to help us uh, in time of need. Father, we, you have given us your spirit to indwell our heart, and he is not just a, a, a glorified conscience but he is the very resource of transforming our hearts and minds into the image of your son. And we admit that we start running so hard that we at times end up neglecting you and we at times feel like we're, uh, you're in our life but the relationship is kind of shaky. And there's times in crisis that we are driven back to your throne room and, and then we sort of get back on our own track and Father, even this morning, we want to ask that you would kind of refocus our heart and our mind and our spirit. Father, give us this chance to, uh, to know that we have a heavenly Father who cares deeply about us. And you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. We pray that we wouldn't spoil that just by trying to run way harder and be way too much in a hurry to get through life than to live it. 
We ask this morning your spirit would continue to be our teacher. May your truth be open to our own hearts that we might consider the things that you're saying to us in reality to life, and we just ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I still have folks asking us how our vacation went. Um, I still say it went fine. Uh, in fact, I tell people it was fantastic. It's, for us, it's a little bit like paradise on earth. I get to golf every day, we go down to the beach, we swim in the ocean, we go out to restaurants, we don't fight or anything like that. We're just, we have a fantastic time uh, just enjoying each other. One day we were down at the pools that are designated for the units who we were staying in and there was a family there and uh, we just struck up a conversation with them and uh, they started asking the normal stuff about what do you do and my wife told them she was a teacher. And the moment I said that I was a pastor, it just kind of lit something up with them. Uh, apparently she had a bit of a Lutheran background. She goes, listen, they had their family there. There was at least two of the kids, I think. One of them wasn't there, but their son, I think it's Preston, he was there. He's a teenager, 14, 15, 16, somewhere in there. She goes, hey, my son's been asking about baptism. Can you talk to him? I'm kind of like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> So what ensued from that is that they dragged Preston over and made him listen to me. I'm kind of like, wow, this poor kid. I, just like, <laughs> you're, you're kidding. But uh, so I started talking about baptism. And because I, she had mentioned that she came from a Lutheran background, I thought, well, our ideas might be a little bit different. So I just started from A to Z, shared the full measure of the gospel and presented it to them and said that, you know, when we baptize people, it's when they personally put their own faith and trust in Christ. And when they do that, then we baptize them as Christ commanded. So then it got into a whole discussion about, you know, well, what's wrong with this baptism and how do we put this together? And, and then after we kind of rummaged through that, the gentleman, the, the husband, kind of looked at me and he goes, can I ask you a question? And he goes, I said, sure. Uh, he says, you mentioned something when you were talking about like these two prisoners or something being crucified with Jesus. Is that actually in the Bible? I said, sure. So I grabbed my phone and I dialed up Matthew and I gave it to him and let him read it. And he went, wow, that's amazing. He says, can I ask you another question? I said, sure. <laughs> that's what I'm born to do here, I think. <laughs> I mean, that's... He says, what's the difference between the Old and New Testaments? And I went, Wow. So I just, so he's lucky we were only there 45 minutes. <laughs> their saving grace is that they had to leave that afternoon and, and catch a flight. So we, uh, we uh, just kind of had to dump everything on their lap and let him go. The next week, I remembered him asking this question. So I sent him the, the, the partner passage about Christ's crucifixion and the thieves having this interaction with Jesus. And I said, for whatever it's worth, you asked, so I'm just giving you another piece. Haven't heard from him. But, but it's funny how God orchestrates these kinds of things where you can do something really good for someone that may seem really, really simple, and yet you have no idea the kind of impact it can have in someone's life. And I, I want to just take a look at a passage, Mark chapter 3, 1 through 6, where this looks overly simple and probably pedestrian, and yet some of the simplest things that we can do in the Christian life are the things that we most overlook. And so I want to begin in looking Mark chapter 3, and starting in verse 1, it says this. It doesn't actually name Jesus by name. Obviously, it is, he, uh, it is who he's referring to. And it says, again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, being the Pharisees and scribes, watched Jesus carefully to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath 
so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or kill? And they didn't say a thing. And Jesus looked at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus on how to destroy him. That's a staggering text. That in the most simplest situations where there was a person in tremendous need and probably be living with a situation that has probably been with them for a while, and most people feeling fairly helpless and not knowing how to respond or to help him, that, that Jesus walks in and under the scrutiny of the Pharisees literally doesn't make mud or doesn't do some fancy formula, but simply calls the man to himself, tells him to stretch out his hand and he heals him, and the response of the Pharisees is, we've got to kill this guy. And something that seems so simple, and maybe even something we would overlook, has massive impact, not only in this man's life, but clearly in the environment that he's living. And one of the things that becomes so profound in this is the power of simply doing something good. Now that may not sound very spiritual to you, but I want us to sort of reminisce a little bit on the power of doing good works, for lack of a better term. You and I both know that in the massively hectic and frenetic pace of life, the one thing that we often lose is our compassion and our time to help someone else and do good things for other people. We live in a culture that doesn't think that way. Our, we live in a culture that's massively entitled. I, I remember the time that we've had people who are Christians, nobody here, this is back in Portland, who will every once in a while saying, well, you're a Christian, therefore you should be doing this for me. Really? But there are Christians who have this entitlement mentality that rather than doing good works for others, their whole mentality is people should be doing good things for me, especially Christians, because that's what God calls them to do, without even the slightest flicker of a reality that they're being selfish or that they're the ones that ought to be doing good things for other people. Well, you and I both know our own level of selfishness. Uh, Grant took some of our young adults up to Silver Bay, up to their cabin, and they're gonna go to one of our sister churches up there, and uh, they're gonna go to their church, so I know they're not watching online, so he can't like rebuke anything here, but, <laughs> but he, he's taking the team up there, and they're gonna go hang out at the church, and we've got one of our other sister churches from southern Minnesota taking a team up there to serve them, and after the service today, they're planning on having a big barbecue, at least for the pastor and his wife, just to do something good to encourage their hearts. Many of us wouldn't even think of that. We're just like, I'm, hey, I'm on my own time. We're gonna go do these things. I'm already busy. I don't need something extra to do. It sounds good, but you know, I'm exhausted. I mean, that's why Abe can say, all of us as parents are like, school, amen, praise the Lord. School is the greatest respite and break and haven of rest for most parents than anything else in the world almost. And so what happens in our life is we get totally exhausted. And the idea of even doing something good for other people for many of us is just sounds like impossible because I am so up to my eyebrows in stuff that I haven't got time, energy, 
or even the heart anymore to do good to someone else. One of the things I like about this text is that I believe it fits very much into one aspect of our new vision frame that we're going to talk about on September the 8th. And one of the sort of philosophical ideas that we want to work with is certain, something that I'll reemphasize this morning, and that is that it is, ought to be the very nature of God's people to do good works and to respond to the needs of people around them. And Jesus is going to demonstrate this in the simplest form and in the very simplest way by finding one person in a crowd of people who are very religious but not very spiritual. And they miss the opportunity to, to move alongside a person, not that they could do what Jesus could do, but their whole mindset in life isn't to do anything that Jesus does. And sometimes we can get caught in the same mindset. That I know I'm a Christian, but my mindset isn't like Jesus at all because I'm in this to survive, not do things for others. And so as we move through the text, we'll discover that as you begin to think through this, the one of the key things, and this is going to sound like really unspiritual, but doing good is about meeting the needs of others. And there's people that I know, even obviously in this context, there's a number of people that do it that I just, I love hanging around them because they know how to do this in ways that I still haven't figured out. I mean, us introverts, if you're an introvert, don't put up your hand. The moment you get any spare time, you just like, oh good, no people, no noise, I can rest. And the idea of someone saying, hey listen, do you want to come and spend time with these bunch of kids or you want to go and stand with the neighbors and hang out there, it's like, You've got to be kidding me. I'm so worn out from the week that the last thing I want to do is hang out with people. But doing good is about meeting the needs of others, and at its core, it is unselfish. And whatever level we have to deal with it, there's always a sense of selfishness that we're battling. doesn't mean that we don't need breaks and we need to take time out. But the real danger is that we sort of develop a heart like the Pharisees, that we've hardened our heart to the idea that it's all about the rules, it's not about people at all. I want you to notice the first line in the text says, and again, Jesus went into the synagogue. One other thing we learn from Jesus is he's not just sitting at home waiting for people to call him, he actually steps into their world. It happened to be the synagogue where they were meeting, and that's where he was going to find the most people that his redemptive mission was focused on at this point, is to the Jews. But he doesn't wait for them to come seek him out, and at this point he probably doesn't need to because of his reputation. But he again steps into their world. He doesn't expect them to step into his. And to me, one of the most profound little things in this entire text is that we have to learn to take the initiative to go to them who have needs, not the other way around. It's easy to step back and say, well, I don't know of anybody that needs anything, but that's because I often live my life in such a bubble, I wouldn't figure out a need from anybody else if they hit it with me with a stick. Because I'm blind to that. All I'm concerned about is my own little bubble. And Jesus, again, goes into the synagogue, into the place where he knows he's going to get friction and frack from the Pharisees, and yet there's people there that he needs. He doesn't consider it a waste of time, he doesn't say this is, this is a ministry and this is a group of people that are never going to listen to me anyway. I mean, at least the leaders. And so he takes the initiative to step into their world. And, and one of the things that I know I have to learn in better measure and that I think a lot of us do is that when we hear of needs, it's kind of like, you know, the great introvert slogan of life is, oh, I don't want to bother anybody. 
I get it, I'm an introvert, but sometimes we need to take our little philosophical idea and stake it to a tree. Because that becomes the most profound excuse why we don't do anything or do good things for people is it's kind of like, oh, I don't want to bother anybody. If they don't want to be bothered, they'll tell you. And so as, as we look at this theologically, the idea of what Jesus does is that he steps into their world, he doesn't expect them to step into his. Morally, the scribes and the Pharisees are gonna look at this as a moral issue because if Jesus does anything during the Sabbath, you're breaking the law and that becomes a moral offense against God because he gave us the Sabbath. Always amazed how people can use the Bible to justify their own behaviors. I was listening to the news the other day and I heard, uh, just saw a brief thing, but I, one number picked me up, it was 270,000, I think. That was the number of people who have died from drugs that have been cut with fentanyl over to, in 2021. It's about a, I think uh, the last stat that was in 220 or 219 was like, there was like 50,000 people that died because of drugs being cut with fentanyl it's, and just totally destroys them and it jumped to like 270. You know, people are so desperate, they'll do things that even risk their life to try to find, to dull the pain, to mitigate all the agony and the anxiety and the stress and the hopelessness and the purposelessness of life. And, and I wanna challenge you that there's people in our lives and around us that are so desperate they're on the edge of even doing things of self-harm, and I would doubt, don't doubt that one act of goodness and to, to meet a need in their life could literally change the trajectory of it. One of the things we have to be careful about, and this is the problem with doing good works as Christians, is that everybody can have an angle. I'm gonna give a gift to you because I want something from you. No, has anyone ever done that? I'm not the only one who's ever done that. You know, if you're in business, we used to give a bad time to people in business. Well, I wanna be in a church, but I wanna do it because I gotta network my business. Anything wrong with that? Let's say no. But if that's the primary reason, then the question is, you're not here because you actually care about people and want to meet their needs. You, you want to do it to build your business or, or you want to do it to get something out of people. There's always this danger in our culture because we're bred on this stuff that when I do good things for other people, it's because I want something. Now, the man with a withered hand doesn't have anything to give to Jesus. Well, maybe his heart. He's not going to get anything from the Pharisees. That becomes pretty plain. But the idea is that there's always a danger that we have ulterior motives behind doing good things for other people that's in our best interest as opposed to what their interest is. We always struggle with, I know what you need even if it's not what you think you need. Does that make sense? See, they have a need and we want to circumvent it because I'm going to meet a need in your life that you don't even know about and I'm going to ignore the need that you actually want me to meet because I have a better spiritual agenda meeting this need than just meeting this physical disability that you have. And Christians have often been accused as, look, you guys are so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. All you care about is people getting saved and the accusation has gone. You want us to get saved and get our money. You don't care about my actual physical need right here. 
And Jesus walks into the synagogue and he sees a man with a withered hand and he's not asking him to go on a mission. He's not asking him for money. He's not doing anything. Jesus sees him and all he wants to do is reach out and touch his life by the power of God and heal his hand that is withered and probably, probably paralyzed. And doing good is about meeting other people's needs. One of the things I'm always concerned about is that people who are really generous and meet other people's needs, especially with friends, I always have, because I'm not a good gift giver, I struggle with that. It's kind of like, what am I going to do with this? Like, my wife and I go back and forth all the time. I've got like 3,000, no, that's an exaggeration. I have so many different workout shorts that I could wear a different pair for two months and not wear the same one twice. And every time it happens, it's kind of like, why are you buying this for me? Well, it's your birthday. I don't care. I don't need one of these things. It doesn't mean anything to me, and so I struggle with that stuff. And I, I've, early in our marriage, I made the mistake is like, well, are you trying to keep buying your friendships? Like, why are you giving all these gifts to people? That didn't go over very well. <laughs> because us selfish people don't get why people are spending so much money on everybody else. It's kind of like, will you stop it? Like, we can't afford this. And so it's very easy to be a miser. It's already easy to be kind of a Scrooge, spiritually. And at the heart of this, we need to realize that if we have this pure, genuine, spirit-driven desire to respond to another piece and do a good work, go out of our way to be generous and to do something for someone else for the sheer joy of setting them free and giving, meeting a need in their life, that ought to just bring absolute exhilaration to our heart because the Spirit of God is working through us to do something that we often dismiss because it's so simple and basic that God could never use this. And so why bother? But I will propose to you in this whole context that doing good can change life. There's no way that when Jesus heals this man that he's going to go, oh, well, whatever. I mean, there are much more agrarian type culture they probably work with their hands all the time and the fact that he can't use his hands is probably massively detrimental to him but doing good can change life and I notice that in the conversations when he walks in there it tells us that the Pharisees were watching him it was the same one when you remember when Paul was in the city and the Pharisees were trying to kill him and they had to let him out you know they had to get him out secretly it tells us that they're the Pharisees were out watching the gates because they wanted to capture him and kill him. That's the same kind of watch that you get here. The Pharisees are absolutely scrutinizing everything Jesus did because they're absolutely dead on trying to find something wrong with what he's doing. They have no compassion. They're going to find something that he does wrong no matter what. And so Jesus comes back to them and he says, listen, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to kill it? Now this kind of messes up the Pharisees because they're used to rules and regulations, especially on the Sabbath. They've, their list of what you don't do is like mammoth. What you can do, yeah, it's there, but it's a shorter list. And they're going to watch everybody to make sure they don't step out of line, do the wrong thing. You know, you get Christians that'll do that today. Oh, can't do that, can't do this. Can't do that either. Fix that phone. <laughs> I can heal it. 
But they're, they're, all they want to do is find out what's wrong. And unfortunately, you run into people that do this. They're always looking around to figure out what people are doing wrong. But the question that Jesus asked kind of rises above the law to say, and it almost sounds like he's begging the question and giving false alternatives. Guys, is it lawful on the Sabbath to save a life or to kill it? Well, it's kind of like, to kill a life? Well, it's not, not only not good on the Sabbath, it's not good on any day to kill anybody. Is it okay to save? Well, if you're talking about killing people, yeah, I guess saving a life would, might work. Is it doing good or doing harm? Well, you notice their response is silence because they don't know how to answer this. They can give you the list of things you're not supposed to do, but when you elevate it to the level of, hey, listen, if people matter and someone's in trouble, is it okay to help them, to save them? Jesus isn't even asking them, can you do a miracle like me and heal somebody that I know you can't do? He changes the paradigm a little bit to say, is it, is it okay on the Sabbath to do good in a, for a need or to do harm? This text reminds me a little bit, not that they're the same, but Galatians chapter five. Do you remember Galatians 5, 18 talks about the fruit of the Spirit? And the text literally comes off and talks about if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now this transitions to the New Covenant framework, but he goes on in there and says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and at the very end of that verse, it says something that most of us tend to skip over. It says, against these things, there is no law. Can you go anywhere in the world and say that people have a law that says you can't love, or can't be kind, or can't be gentle? Is there a law against those things? Of course not. And Jesus is kind of posing the question to the Pharisees in such a way that he's saying, listen, I know you got all your rules and regulations and I know what God said in the Old Testament about stuff, but if we're dealing with a person, is it okay to, to save and to do good and to help them or would we better just kill them and not do anything? And you'll notice their response, they got nothing. And in fact, they're gonna get more irritated with Jesus because they're making, he's making them look stupid. They're so concerned about their rules and regulations, what you don't and don't do as a religious person. We would put it in the context of a Christian. And you can find these lists in churches some days, depending on the church you come out of. You have to dress a certain way. You can only drink hot chocolate. No, wait a minute, that's, that's my rule, not somebody else's. You can only wear certain clothes. You can only drink certain beverages. There's all kinds of churches that have their neat little rules to tell people whether they're spiritual or not. And I think Jesus would come and say the same thing, like, guys, you're so committed to your rules that you've lost sight of people. You don't care about people, all you care about is your rules. Because it gives you control over individuals. And so, the element of this sort of breeds this idea that not only are the Pharisees watching Jesus to find out whether he's going to heal this man on the Sabbath, by the way, there's an intuitive truth in there that they actually believe Jesus can heal or they wouldn't be watching for him to heal. Here's some guys that are Pharisees that are dead sent against Jesus that have this assumption because they've either heard it or seen it that Jesus actually can heal and they still won't buy into him. 
And so if they're watching him to see whether he'll heal the man on the Sabbath, they're even more concerned about the rules of the Sabbath than what Jesus can do for this man. Every once in a while, I'll run into people like this. They are nauseating. In fact, I was talking with a pastor this last week who has a person on their board. I don't know if I should go here or not. It's a biblical, this person, all they vet everything through is whether a person believes in dispensationalism. So if they want a new idea and it doesn't fit his idea of dispensationalism, he's, he's against it. The pastors talked about ideas of strategy of growing the church, and it comes back to some kind of dispensationalism. Is there anything wrong with dispensationalism? No. There's people that have very different models of eschatology and end times. But I said, where does the gospel fit into his framework? I mean, I know it can, but, but this board member is digging his heels in every time. They, and I said, well, that's what tells me it has nothing to do with dispensationalism. It tells me this person is terrified of change, wants to protect the past and keep things the way they are. So they're finding anything they can to resist him as a pastor to move this forward and touch the community. And the Pharisees and scribes would be fit into this category where they could find every reason and excuse in the book not to do something good for someone else. In Matthew 23, you'll remember Jesus ripped on the Pharisees and the scribes because they would swear an oath that they've devoted certain things to the Lord and their parents have need and they won't even help them because, well, it's devoted to the Lord, so I can't help you. Sure, if Jesus had a whip, he would have thrashed them with it. Because religion never triumphs relationship. It's not what it's about. And it tells us that Jesus was angry with them. I mean, Jesus, if you had an emotion to it, he's starting to get hot about these people because he sees the dysfunction in this whole thing that they're doing. There's a man with a withered hand. They can't care about him. Jesus has the power to heal him, even if it's on the Sabbath, and they're going to ferociously go after Jesus. They're masters of religion and terrible about spirituality. And it tells us he's grieved because of the hardness of their heart. And I I just want to propose that as a principle in the whole scheme of where we live is that when we get hardness of heart, we don't care about people anymore and we don't care about doing good for people. All we care about is our rules and our schedules and our routines. It's really, really hard to break out of that because this is killing me. I haven't got time for people. And when Jesus walks into the synagogue and he tells the men to come over, Jesus doesn't do anything. He just says, stretch out your hand. And he stretches out his hand and it literally, it's restored. It looks just like the other one. I thought, what a, what a beautiful picture of what Jesus does to broken men and women. It's not, it's not just about healing physical circumstances. But he wants to restore broken hearts. Jesus will change this man's circumstances, but he greatly desires to change his character. Christ's good work will heal his disability, but the greater good is to change his destiny. And the good work hopefully becomes a touch of the power of Christ in his life to reaffirm who he is 
so that this man may become a believer and a follower of Jesus. I never assume just because someone heals someone that they're automatically a believer in him as a savior. They might believe in him as being, wow, a great medical person, but there's another step to, to, to get to the idea that they're gonna surrender their life and say, I believe in you so fully that I think you're my savior. And the problem that the Pharisees had was they had a trouble of what is good. For them, it was about rule keeping and, and making sure they didn't break the Sabbath. But the character of doing good obviously isn't about what their opinion is. Ultimately, because the Sabbath comes into the discussion, the question is, what is ultimately good to God the Father? And he sent his son not to die for angels or for, he came to die for people. And at the heart of the, of the gospel is that great, God's greatest good work is the sacrifice of his own son. It is good in that it's perfect and it's complete, it's sufficient, it's not inadequate in any sense of the word. It is good because it's the goodness of God. And one of the things we have to keep reminding ourselves is we have a God who still does good work in the sense that he still heals people. We can't just loft this off to a metaphor and keep it there. God heals people. He, he does invade their circumstances. He does change the trajectory of where people are going. Does he do it in every person's life, in every situation? No, and I can't tell you why. But God still changes things. Several weeks ago, I talked to you about my friend Brent Jordan, who they found diagnosed back in 2018 with cancer. He was treated for it, came back this last year, and they found he had cancer in his back, in his L3 vertebrae. The prognosis was that if they didn't operate, he was as good as dead. They scheduled all that, and he invited a bunch of us to be praying for him. When he went in for the pre-op surgery day, they did all the scans again, and they couldn't find any cancer at all. He struggled with it because he's going like, I got people on one side jumping up and down like I've been healed, but I've got kind of a skeptical heart. I've heard this happening before, and then six months later, We've declared God's healed this, and all of a sudden now we're fighting cancer again. I, I, don't know, I don't know what to do with this. So we had some interesting conversations. But he went back, I think in 1st of July, to, for another follow-up exam, and they can't find any hot cells at all anywhere. It's cool. And so God does still heal. He still changes our circumstances. And at times we've become sloppy at praying that God would do good things in other people's lives, even if it's just physical, temporary things. God does still care about our journey and our afflictions and our affirmities. But he does care far more about our destiny. And you might be a person who thinks God's supposed to be a concierge who, if he's really doing his job, all he's supposed to do is make my life easier and fix my problems and get me out of trouble. And sometimes God will do that, but it's to reveal to him that he loves you far more than just being a concierge. He wants to change not just the disability in your life, he wants to change the destiny of your life. Maybe you've been guilty of having this image of God that's, that if he really loves me, then he needs to serve me rather than me serving him. 
I don't know how much you want him to serve you, but when he sacrificed his own son on the cross so that you might have life, there's no greater good work than that. There's no, nothing more profound or ultimately that meets the deepest need in your life, and that is that we're sinners and separated from him. For some of you, you might go, well, you know, I grew up in the 70s, so it was kind of the social gospel. Just everyone run around, do random acts of kindness and good stuff, and then we'll all feel better about ourselves. Eh, not too jazzed on that. But if we can do good works on behalf of Jesus to allow the grace of God to touch people's lives and we do it as a representative of Jesus, it can open up doors for us to not only help meet physical needs of this life, but introduce them to the God who can change the destiny of their eternal life. So we wanna become masters of people who do good works. Now, just in case you think it's a fluffy subject, let me give you a really quick rundown. The theological framework of the scriptures. Matthew 5.15, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Ephesians 2.10, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Titus 2.7, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show uh, integrity and dignity. Titus 3.1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Titus 3.14, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. James chapter 2 tells us that faith without works is dead. And if there's anything that ought to be one of the distinctive elements of the Christian community, is that we're not watching to find out what's wrong with the people around us and find out where they're wrong and to criticize and complain, especially of people in the world, because they have no capacity to live in a way that serves God or adopt our morality or anything. But we gotta be watching like a hawk to find ways that we can be generous and step into people's lives and do good works on behalf of Christ so they might see his grace and love in action. And they might have the possibility of understanding the greatest work ever where God sacrificed his son so that he wouldn't just fix their temporal circumstances, but he changed the destiny of their eternal habitat. The problem is, as you look at verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus on how to destroy him. I don't get that. That's kind of a mind-blowing concept, that Jesus comes into a situation, he heals a man, it happened to be on the Sabbath, and there's still people who look at that and were eyewitnesses to it that would rather kill Jesus than get on board and believe in who he is and do the same thing. I think they need a new life plan. But you're gonna find there's lots of people in this world that need a new life plan. They're dying of drugs, they're getting divorced, they're losing their jobs, they're taking it out on their neighbors and their friends. We live in a world that is getting more helpless and more desperate, and if there's anything that I believe will put the deepest imprint upon people in our life right now, is when human beings who call themselves Christians will go out of their way to be generous and do good works that could change the trajectory of someone's life. 
You think you have that capacity in you? I know you don't have the time. If you're an introvert, you have no inclination to do that, so you're gonna have to do some extra surrendering to Jesus if you're gonna pull this off. You may not be a teacher or an orator, you may not be an apologetic, you, you may not be able to defend the faith, but you can live out your faith in the simplest way possible by reaching out and touching someone whose life is strangled and withering and you can give them hope because you touch them with the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God and it opens a door so that you can be in their journey to share with them the message of the gospel that can change their destiny. Let me give you a, a shot. You think you take a shot at this this week finding one person that you could do one simple thing for? Someone at work, someone in the neighborhood? I sat down on Friday and I'm discipling a gentleman from our church and he said, well, I've, uh, one of the conversations came up is, well, I've been going to this one particular pizza place every Friday because I pick it up for my family and the Lord put it on my heart that I was supposed to give him an extra tip. I said, what does an extra tip mean? I, you know, some of us, we think a good tip is 10%. The juggernaut tippers are like 18 or 20%. He says, well, yeah, it's probably more like 40%. But he says, you know, when I left, one of the workers came up and he says, you have no idea how much that means to the guys cooking in the back. You have no idea what it means to us when someone would actually be generous to us rather than just criticize and complain that we didn't do our job. He says, I've been going back there every week just to kind of build relationship. Let me give you a tip. Do you think there's one person you could make the time to go and respond to a need this week? Maybe it's having lunch. Maybe it's taking them out for coffee. Maybe it's praying for them. Maybe it's buying groceries or a tank of gas. Maybe it's buying dinner, taking them out for dinner. Maybe it's looking after their kids. You all worn out? Or you think maybe God could do something really simple, but life-changing? Father, we thank you.